Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Later in the podcast, I'll be talking to Tom Hennigan, our correspondent in Brazil, about Jair Bolsonaro, the firebrand populist candidate who looks certain to win the first round of Brazil's presidential election early next month. He is campaigning from his hospital bed, having been stabbed at a campaign rally almost three weeks ago. Many in Brazil see him as the perfect antidote to a corrupt political establishment that is leading their country to ruin. Others see Bolsonaro as a menace who could well destroy Brazil's three-decade-old democracy. But first this week, it's Brexit once again, and it was a wounded and indeed angry British Prime Minister, Theresa May, who returned from last week's EU summit in Salzburg, having suffered what many described as a humiliating failure to win support for her Chequers plan on the UK's relationship with the EU after Brexit. As I told EU leaders... Neither side should demand the unacceptable of the other. Throughout this process, I have treated the EU with nothing but respect. The UK expects the same. A good relation... Mrs May now faces a hazardous Conservative Party conference next week. But the opposition Labour Party is not without its own Brexit troubles, and that's where I'm starting this week's discussion with Dennis Staunton, our London editor. Dennis, uh, you're in Liverpool at the Labour Party conference and Brexit is being debated as we speak. But before we get into what's happening there, just maybe remind us in broad terms, where does Labour stand on Brexit and how does this position differ from that of the Conservative Party government? Well, Labour campaigned to remain in the European Union uh, in the referendum. And then after the uh, the referendum happened, uh, the Labour position was to accept uh, Brexit and to go with it. Uh, most Labour supporters, about two thirds of them voted in favour of remaining in the EU, but about a third uh, voted against. And uh, and in fact, about 70% of Labour MPs uh, are in seats in constituencies that uh, voted for Brexit. So uh, a lot of them are caught in this uh, dilemma where they, most of the MPs are very anti-Brexit. Most of the party members, particularly a lot of the young members who joined since Jeremy Corbyn became leader, are extremely anti-Brexit and would like to remain in the European Union. But a lot of the voters, uh, a substantial minority of the Labour voters, are in favour of Brexit and they voted for it. So the Labour position has been that they respect the referendum, but at the same time, they've been moving towards a position where they said that they wanted uh, a relationship which was much closer to the European Union uh, after Brexit than the government does. So as you know, uh, a couple of years ago, Theresa May set out a number of red lines where she said that uh, when Britain leaves the European Union, it would also leave the single market and the customs union and the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice. What Labour has been saying, uh, and again, this position has been developing over the last uh, year or two, is that they want to remain in a customs union with the European Union and they want to have very close relationship with the single market, something not quite in the single market, but very close to it. And uh, what's been happening over the last few days is that they've been debating exactly where they go next with the uh, with their policy um and um that debate is taking place uh, today tuesday as i said and th- there's a, a long motion before the conference which i think in summary it says that if, if theresa may comes back from brussels with a deal on brexit and that deal is rejected by by parliament labor would seek a general election but if it fails to get a general election then the motion decrees that the option of another referendum must be on the table now now so far so good but i think the contentious issue that has emerged and and i'm not sure the motion even addresses this is whether that vote is should a vote go back to the british public whether that vote should include an option to remain that really is the contentious issue there isn't it 
That's right. And uh, a lot of people who uh, campaigned for a second referendum got very excited when it became clear that uh, that this motion was going to include some kind of a measure where in certain circumstances Labour would support a second referendum. But then uh, once the motion, the text of the motion to be debated was agreed on Sunday night, some of uh, those close to uh, Jeremy Corbyn, including the shadow chancellor, John McDonnell, said, well, uh, this a referendum, if there's going to be one, it would have to just be a referendum on Theresa May's deal. So either you accept Theresa May's deal or you reject it, but remaining in the European Union shouldn't be on the menu. Now, since then, there's been uh, some clarification of that. And Keir Starmer, in his speech today, he's the shadow Brexit secretary, he uh, made a speech where he said, uh, as you've described it, the various sequence of events, including the fact that they, that if they couldn't get a general election, which they wouldn't, that they would, uh, uh, that they would campaign for uh, a public vote, as they call it, for a second referendum. Our options must include campaigning for a public vote, and nobody is ruling out Remain as an option. And he got a standing ovation, which lasted nearly a minute long. Now, the line saying uh, nobody's ruling out Remain as an option was not in the uh, in the text of the speech that Labour released in advance to journalists. So it seems that he put that in himself. And certainly in putting it in, he uh, you know, he seemed to chime with the delegates who were in the hall. So what does seem now to be the case is that Labour's position is that whatever deal comes back uh, from Brussels, whatever deal that uh, Theresa May brings back from Brussels, they're almost certain to reject it. That's because they've set out these tests uh, for it, which quite clearly it can't meet. Because, for example, one of them is that the deal should uh, should give um, as good access to the single market as the current position is. And obviously that's just not possible. And so, uh, so they're going to reject the deal. And then uh, if the uh, if they can't get a general election, uh, they'll then uh, campaign for a referendum. And I think it probably is the case because if you look at the text of the motion, it doesn't it doesn't actually say anything about what uh, ought to be on the ballot. So I would imagine that by the time you get to that point, that remaining in the European Union would be on Labour's favoured ballot for a referendum. And if I sound cautious about all of that, it's because getting from here to having a referendum, you have to go through an awful lot of steps, including a lot of complicated parliamentary steps, which could make it very difficult to get there. So Keir Starmer's position on this is clear, uh, really. But um, there was some confusion yesterday about John McDonnell, the deputy leader, where in the morning he seemed to rule out another referendum, which would allow, which would include the option of remain. Did he clarify that later in the day or not? I know Keir Starmer is saying he did, but I'm not quite clear what actually happened on, on Monday afterwards. He kind of clarified it in that uh, he said that, of course, all options uh, would be available. He said, really, it would be up to Parliament to decide what was going to be uh, on, uh, you know, what the question of the referendum would be. And that's true because, I mean, the, you know, uh, and here you get into the difficulties of having a second referendum. To have a second referendum, you have to have legislation in Parliament and government, the government controls the legislative agenda. So uh, it's going to be quite difficult for uh, anybody other than the government to to, uh, to actually get a, a bill through Parliament that authorises a referendum. Then you have to decide on what the question is. And then the question is, for example, do you uh, have, uh, like if Theresa May, for example, brings back a deal, is the choice between uh, Theresa May's deal and no deal? Or is it between Theresa May's deal and remaining in the European Union? Or is it are there three options that you take Theresa May's deal or you remain in the European Union 
union or you decide to leave without a deal. So all of these are kind of complicated questions. So where John McDonnell ended up uh, yesterday afternoon was kind of saying, well, it'll be for Parliament to decide that. And so one of the things that you've seen, and you've seen it even in the minutes after uh, Keir Starmer was speaking, where you've seen other people who are quite close to the leadership uh, appearing to endorse what Keir Starmer said, but also uh, stepping back from it a little bit. And, and, and again, for many of these people who represent seats and constituencies in, say, the Midlands or the north of England, which had very heavy remain or Brexit votes. These people, they don't want to appear to be going against their constituents' will, and they don't want to be saying, look, you voted to leave the European Union, but we, the Labour Party, are now going to try to have another referendum to reverse your decision. They're treading very carefully on it, but at the same time, the, there's no question but the overwhelming majority of Labour members favour reversing Brexit. And not only that, but if you look at the seats that Labour has to win in the next uh, general election, if it's going to gain power, and these are marginal seats that have become marginal, uh, mostly in the south of England. And these are seats that where uh, they've become available potentially to Labour because a lot of people have deserted the Conservatives because they don't like Brexit. And so I think what you're going to see over the next few months is an inching towards uh, a, a more remain position than you've had, but they will tread very carefully on it. Is there a danger, Dennis, here for Jeremy Corbyn in that, you know, he, he is clearly trying to keep the, I suppose, the pro-Brexit Labour supporters and manager constituencies who were in favour of leaving, keep them on side. And, and as you mentioned just now, he's also, the party is inching sort of towards this remain position. But is there a danger here that... Um, leadership is being sacrificed at the altar of pragmatism. I mean, we still don't really know what Corbyn's own core position on Brexit is. Is that right? Yes, we know what his history is. And his history is that he voted consistently against the European Union uh, before he became leader. He voted against uh, membership of the European Union in the referendum in 1975 on uh, Britain's membership of the European Union. And he's uh, voted with Eurosceptics more or less ever since. But he did back uh, remain in the referendum. And uh, his official and his public position certainly is that uh, is that he endorses the position of the party, which is that they're going for a soft Brexit and that uh, you know, they will reject Theresa May's deal and that then what they would like would be to have a general election. But if they can't have a general election, then they will go for a referendum. He said uh, on Sunday that whatever the conference decides, he'll go along with. I think the key is that for Jeremy Corbyn, the European Union is not the most important issue. There are certain things he doesn't like about being in the European Union. And he and, he and some of the people around him would see certain advantages, for example, in uh, not being subject to EU state aid rules. It means it might be easier to uh, intervene in the economy uh, in the future if you're a Labour government. But generally speaking, what Jeremy Corbyn wants and the people around him want is to get into power and to realise uh, their programme of left-wing social democracy. And that uh, includes redistribution of wealth. It includes renationalisation of some utilities like the railways. And it's generally uh, what, they, what they're really concerned about is getting power and being able to put through their program. And if that means that you have to hedge a little bit on something like uh, the European Union, then so be it. And I think the interesting thing is, if you look at the opinion polls about uh, how people feel about remaining or leaving the European Union, there has been a small shift uh, towards uh, remain. And that 
shift is reflecting mainly Labour voters who have been moving from Brexit to Remain. And, and what seems to be the case is that a lot of these Labour voters who voted to leave, they're not quite as committed to Brexit as the Conservative voters are. And Dennis, leaving aside Brexit for a moment, how would you describe the mood in the Labour Party right now? Are the divisions there as deep as they seem from the outside? The divisions are, uh, are are there, particularly within the parliamentary party, where uh, the you know most of the MPs don't like Jeremy Corbyn and they don't like his leadership. Having said that, you have got this sense that uh, among the delegates that they could find themselves in government quite soon. They really do. Uh, see Brexit as being a disaster for uh, Theresa May's government. And they can't uh, imagine a scenario where within a few months uh, her government collapses. Now, it is difficult to precipitate a general election in the in the British system now because they've got this fixed-term Parliaments Act. But having said that, there is this sense that they they could be quite close, that, uh, you know, they have got this very big membership, a very active membership, and so there is a confidence about the place, despite the fact that it's been a pretty terrible summer for Jeremy Corbyn, particularly with uh, this controversy over anti-Semitism and generally all kinds of doubts about his leadership resurfacing after uh, a period of relative calm. But the mood is generally pretty good uh, here in uh, in Liverpool. And I think when the Conservatives meet in uh, Birmingham next week, it's uh, you're going to see a much more divided party. Because, I mean, if you think about it, Labour did have all this wrangling on Sunday night and a little bit yesterday. But by today, by Tuesday, they had come together around a unified position on Brexit. There is no possibility that the Conservatives are going to be able to do the same next week. And I'll, I'll come back to that in just a moment, Dennis. But as regards the Labour Party, I can understand um, their sense of um, anticipation, you know, that the, the, the government government is in trouble and that their, their chance may come soon. But is there not also a sense of unease that Labour does seem to be failing to capitalise on the Conservative Party's woes um, in terms of the opinion polls would suggest they haven't really built their on their support since their good showing in the last election? Well, what they would say is that at the uh, at the beginning of the last election campaign, when it was called, Labour was on 25%. And uh, when the election happened, they won 40% of the vote or thereabouts. And so they were level pegging with the Conservatives. And they've held most of that. So they are always more or less around 40%, 39%, 38%, 41%. So around about 40%. And they would say they're holding this uh, level of support in a very hostile media environment, in a hostile environment at Westminster for Jeremy Corbyn, because uh, there are all these talks of splits and of um, some of his MPs wanting to defect and leave and set up uh, their own party. So what, he, what, what his supporters would say is, look, despite everything that's happened, we're still uh, at 40%. And if you were to go into a general election, uh, it's pretty clear that Jeremy Corbyn uh, is a good campaigner and that, uh, you you know, you don't know who's going to be leading the Conservative Party. But uh, if it's Theresa May, it's not going to be um, necessarily a very good campaigner at the top. And so they would say that um, the things are looking pretty good for them. And that actually the fact that they were able to hold on to this 40% share of support uh, is an achievement in itself and that, you know, that they can only gain from the campaign. I think one point which is in their favour is that the electoral map that, uh, you know, that, that they're facing after 2017 is much, much more favourable to them than the one that Ed Miliband left in 2015. What they inherited in 2015 was an awful lot of very marginal Labour seats. 
and a lot of safe conservative seats. And what and that just has been entirely flipped. So there are, there's a huge number of very, very marginal conservative seats, including by some, uh, you know, held by some cabinet ministers and some very prominent members of the Conservative Party. And a lot of the uh, the Labour seats, which had been marginal, uh, have now become very comfortably held. And so so they're, they're heading into the next election from a much more comfortable position than they went into the last one in. Okay, and so the Conservative Party meets uh, next week and it starts um, Sunday, I think, in, in, in Birmingham. Um, I know that we'll be discussing that in more detail then, but how much more difficult do you think Theresa May's position has been made by last week's debacle in Salzburg? I think it's been made very difficult by last week's debacle in Salzburg and also actually by what's happened in uh, Liverpool here with the Labour Party this week. In Salzburg, uh, what happened was that they, they pulled the plug on uh, on her Chequers plan. The idea going into Salzburg had been that uh, the European leaders were uh, going to be quite polite about Chequers without actually endorsing it, and that then they would all agree that they would uh, you know, try to make progress on uh, the Brexit negotiations in October, and then they'd have another summit in November to sign off on the deal. And then that would tide her over so that she'd be able to go into uh, to her party conference in uh, October, or at the beginning of next week, with, uh, with Chequers still not quite dead, even though everybody knows that the Europeans didn't really like it and they weren't going to accept it in the end. Instead, what happened was that she went in, she provoked them really by taking uh, a, a very aggressive position saying, Chequers is a kind of a take it or leave it offer. I've uh, made all these compromises and now it's up to you to move. And then also making clear that she wasn't prepared to move quickly on sorting out the issue of the Irish border backstop. And so the Europeans decided uh, that uh, they weren't going to put up with this. And they uh, basically said, uh, you know, Donald Tusk, the uh, European Council president, and Emmanuel Macron particularly said, this checkers thing, your economic proposals, they're just not going to work. And they also said, uh, if we don't get progress on the Irish border backstop in October, there will be no summit in November. So they put her on the spot in terms of trying to get that done. So uh, she came back and on Friday, the day after the summit, she gave this very defiant televised address from Downing Street where she said that she wanted to be treated with more respect by the Europeans and that, uh, you know, uh, she was ready to go for no deal if, it, if necessary and that they would come up with their own proposals for the backstop. And that appeared to, uh, in a way, persuade uh, some of the uh, Brexiteers that at least there was some fighting talk. But in the, uh, the the few days since then, the Brexiteers have been proposing their own plans about going for a Canada-style free trade agreement. And she's under big pressure again to abandon the Chequers plan, which is very unpopular, not just among Brexiteer MPs, but also among the Conservative Party faithful. I think where things have become more difficult for her because of what's happened in Liverpool is that it's now quite clear, Labour has made it clear, it will vote against whatever deal she brings back. And that means that she really needs the support of all of the Conservative Party, more or less, to get this through. And uh, and that's going to be very difficult. And certainly, 
It means that she can't, uh, you know, because the Brexiteers have made it clear that anything like cheers, they would, uh, that they'll vote against it. So she really is going to have to uh, probably come up with something either which is very vague or something which is more like a free trade agreement uh, rather than uh, like a more integrated uh, special access to the single market or whatever. And of course, uh, to get even to that point, she has to get a withdrawal agreement. And to get that, she needs to come up with some kind of solution to the issue of the Irish border. And, and finally, how much mischief could the Brexiteers do next week? I mean, can they force her to abandon checkers? Well, they can certainly, I think, I think she's going to have to abandon checkers uh, sooner or later. And by sooner or later, I mean, if it's not next week, it'll be the week after or the week after that. Because the Europeans have said quite clearly that uh, the proposal to have access to the single market for goods and not for services and to have this very, very complicated customs arrangement she's proposing, that the, you know they're just not going to accept it. So she's going to abandon checkers. The question is when. And certainly they will pile the pressure on her to do it. And Boris Johnson, for example, is planning a rally uh, to address a rally of a thousand people uh, within the uh, security uh, perimeter of the conference. And there will be fringe meetings with him, with David Davis, with uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, with all these leading Brexiteers uh, who just be hammering over and over again that she's got to, as they say, chuck checkers and, uh, you know, and how she can keep repeating uh, that checkers is alive and well. Uh, throughout the week will be an interesting one to watch. And also what's going to be interesting is to see how many cracks start appearing within her own cabinet, how many of her cabinet loyalists start to look a little bit less loyal during the conference. OK, well, we'll see what emerges from the Tory party conference next week. In the meantime, Dennis, we look forward to reading more of your reports and analysis from the, the Labour Party conference in Liverpool. Thanks for joining us today. That was Dennis Staunton, our London editor in Liverpool. It's to Brazil now, where voters go to the polls on October 7th in the first round of a presidential election being held at a critical time for a country mired in corruption scandals and struggling to emerge from the worst recession in its history. Many Brazilians, fed up with the decline presided over by what they see as an inept and corrupt political establishment, are turning to an unlikely potential saviour, Jair Bolsonaro, a populist from the far right who has vowed to clean up politics and proposes extreme measures to deal with another issue of public concern, rising gun crime. Tom Hennigan joins me now from Sao Paulo. Tom, the rise of the populist politician in democracies around the world has become one of the stories of our time and inevitably people are drawing comparisons between Jair Bolsonaro and the current occupant of the White House, Donald Trump. Is it a fair comparison? In certain ways it is. Um, I think both have capitalised on discontent um, over economic stagnation or, in Brazil's case, decline. Um, And they've also both stoked culture wars and trying to polarise society between um, very simply left and and right. Um, But I think uh, in the case of Bolsonaro, we're talking about a much more aggressive figure Um, and um, someone who, unlike Donald Trump, who has been accused of dog whistle racism and dog whistle misogyny and and things like that, uh, Bolsonaro is much more open in his contempt for democracy. We're talking about someone who all his political career has attacked um, democratic institutions and praised um, Brazil's previous military dictatorship. And also someone who was very open in his particularly misogyny against women, homophobia um, against uh, gays, and who um, himself personally and his team, um, I'm thinking here of his his running mate, have um, 
said phrases that there's no other way of interpreting them, just open racism. So I think we're, there are certain comparisons with Trump, but I think the Bolsonaro phenomenon in Brazil is a, an even cruder form of right-wing populism. And just to give us a picture, Tom, tell us about some of his more controversial statements and, and, and policy positions over the years. Well, um, he is someone who has always um, sought to venerate the military dictatorship in Brazil and his criticisms of it. Um, one of his more famous phrases was that um, that rather than the 434 people the dictatorship did kill and disappear during its quarter century in power, that it should have killed 30,000 um, people on the left in order to put the country to rights. This is someone who has said that Pinochet did what he had to do. If he um, if he had any failings, it was that he didn't kill enough people. Um, we're talking about someone who has said that women should be paid less because they become pregnant and therefore um, that comp- um, raises complications for companies. Um, he has been processed um, all the way up to the Supreme Court because he has told two um, female colleagues in the Congress that um, he wouldn't rape them because, in his own phrase, they didn't deserve it. Um, he has also said that he would rather, for example, um, his own sons to die in an accident than come home and, and tell them that they were gay. He was once asked in an interview, um, how would you feel if one of your sons um, came home with a black girlfriend? And he said, oh, that wouldn't happen because I raised my sons um, correctly. So we're talking about someone with a very, um, very open, crude, aggressive um, level of misogyny, uh, homophobia, racism, and um, contempt for democratic and civic norms. He makes Donald Trump sounds like a moderate. Um, what's his background, Tom? He was um, a captain in the military. He entered the military uh, during the second part of the, the dictatorship in Brazil. Um, he rose to captain. He was uh, then charged with planning a bombing campaign um, against military bases as part of a group of, of junior officers who were demanding better pay and conditions. He left the military under a cloud. But the fact that he was um, campaigning for better salaries gave him a start in politics. So he became a city council member in Rio de Janeiro, elected by the large um, military vote in the city. Um, and then he quickly went to Congress, where he's been for 28 years, accomplished very little. He's sort of a, a kind of a dark joker in the Congress, always good for an outrageous quote or statement, something aggressive. Um, so he's really been someone on the fringes of, of Brazilian political life for a couple of decades now, uh, with the same message that he's now running on. What has happened is as the traditional mainstream parties have become discredited because of the uh, the recession that um, gripped the country in 2014 and has still left around 14 million people without jobs in Brazil and because of the corruption scandals involving all the big traditional parties. Um, a certain um, percentage of the population has now started drifting towards uh, his message. Uh, but he is someone who is sort of seen as very limited experience of, of administration. Uh, he has a very strong anti-corruption message, even though when you look at his record um, in the Congress, there are issues over his own ethic, um, financial ethics, uh, leaving aside his, his other um, polemical statements. So um, he is, he's considered, he openly says himself, he knows nothing about economics. He's contracted a, a well-known economist to be his future finance minister, but he's considered someone um, by a lot of experts in the various fields um, that he will have control over public security, finance, international relations, that he doesn't know anything about these subjects. But for many of his voters, that doesn't seem to matter. 
And where does he stand now in the election race, Tom? Um, what level of support does he have and, and who are his main opponents? Well, um, Monday night, we had the latest opinion poll coming out, which shows him on 28%. And what's interesting about that is, is that he um, he was stabbed earlier uh, this month and he got a bump in the polls and a sort of a sympathy vote after that. But his rise has now, he seems to have hit some sort of ceiling and his rejection ratings are going up all the time. Because he's become the clear front runner. all the other candidates are beginning to concentrate their fire on him. So he's at 28% in the polls, which leading, which would be more than enough to get him into a second round in the end of October. But what we are seeing is that the main left-wing candidate, uh, Fernando Haddadji of the Workers' Party, who after the former president Lula was barred from the race because of his corruption conviction, Haddadji became the party's candidate. And the Workers' Party are, are managing to transfer Lula's support to Haddadji. He's now 22% in the polls. So we're out in front in second place. And so that looks like it's going to be the runoff um, between the far right um, under Bolsonaro and the left under Haddadji. But all the second round scenarios with the, involving the five leading candidates show that Bolsonaro would not win. So there does seem to be um, a growing uh, rejection amongst the majority of Brazilians that um, even, even if uh, the left wing gets in and there is still a lot of antagonism in Brazil towards the Workers' Party because it's been at the centre of a lot of corruption scandals and is also um, considered responsible in the major part for the, the recession that gripped the country, that uh, there's Bolsonaro has attempted to become the anti-PT candidate, but it seems that because of um, his own radical uh, discourse, um, very aggressive tone, that people are beginning to be, um, consider the fact that they might have to vote for the Workers' Party candidate to stop someone like Bolsonaro becoming president. And could we assume that the people in the, the middle ground, if you like, would vote for the Workers' Party candidate? Is, is there a danger that you would end up with two polarising figures in, in the final round? It, it, it will be a very... If it is a final round, as um, the opinion polls are predicting between Bolsonaro and Haddadji of the Workers' Party, um, it will be a very, very polarised race. It's three weeks between the first and the second round. Bolsonaro, who has very little time on the uh, party political broadcast at the moment, would have equal time with Haddad. So a lot could change. Um, but as I say, all the opinion polls at the moment show him losing to Haddadji in a second round. Um, it is That gap between them in a potential second round is growing. Um, and... I think there is, because Bolsonaro was in a crowded field um, where a lot of, particularly in the centre ground, were, were fighting each other to become the front runner of the centre ground, he was able to a certain extent avoid a more rigorous examination of his personality and his policies. But now that he's out in front, he's been finally subjected to that. And I think also there's a realisation in Brazil that a, a President Bolsonaro would be very negatively um, viewed internationally. And so um, there is a question of would the, would the middle class, which is the main bastion of, of, of opposition to the Workers' Party, would they either just stay at home for the second round or would they, in a majority, come out and vote for Haddadji? But at the moment, the polls seem to indicate that they would, that Bolsonaro... Uh, does look at the moment that he that his rise will be stopped in the second round. What kind of problems, Tom, is Brazil facing right now that, that so many people might be prepared to turn to such an extreme figure as Bolsonaro? 
I think it's just the the um, disillusion with traditional politics, the the political model that was put in place um, in the 1980s with the return of democracy. Um, I think Brazil has always known that its political culture is corrupt. But since 2014, you have seen these spectacular anti-corruption cases. Finally, federal prosecutors and judges are beginning to tackle this issue and the corruption in Brazilian um, in political in, in Brazilian politics, and that has set off a, a wave of um, uh, a kind of an anti-politics as normal sentiment amongst a certain segment of the population. Then you also have this terrible recession, which gripped the country for several years. Um, the economy is slowly growing again, but the social carnage that the recession caused is still to be tackled. Uh, there's a, around 14 million people without work, over 20 million people who say they do not have enough work. Um, you have many of the states, uh, our governments are broke, hospitals don't have medicines, um, pensions aren't being paid. So there is a, a, a very dangerous dynamic where you have the corruption of the political class being exposed at the same time that the population has to go through um, an, an awful moment socially caused by the, the recession. And that has, um, as the polls show, about 28% of the population are willing to consider solutions from someone who isn't really providing solutions so much as shouting, as Bolsonaro does, that he just wants to get rid of everything that um, is in place at the moment. This is like a kind of a clean sweep that he's going to clean up the country uh, that he's going to provide security. You drill down and look at his policies, he doesn't seem to have any idea how he's going to do this. But I think there's a certain um, sense of people just being fed up with how things have been done in Brazil for so long, that some are just willing to take a, a chance um, on um, someone who, even people who say they're voting for Bolsonaro, and I've had these conversations, who are willing to say, look, I know it's a risk, but I'm willing to take it at this stage. And so I think that's uh, what he's feeding on at the moment. And I know some people see him as a threat to democracy itself in Brazil. Is is, is that going too far or, or do you think that's a reasonable concern? No, I think it's an absolutely reasonable concern. He's, uh, Bolsonaro has never in his career shown any respect for democracy. We're talking about someone who uh, is enthralled with um, dictators, particularly Latin American dictators like Brazil's um, former military regime, like Pinochet. He chose as his vice um, can, uh, president running mate a general who was, uh, he wasn't fired, but he was eased out of the army last year when still a four-star general. He said if the political class didn't get their act together, the army would step in. Uh, he has, now that he is on the campaign trail as Bolsonaro's uh, running mate, he has said that he would like to appoint a council of notables to draw up a new constitution. That sounds to a lot of people like the sort of tactic that strong men have used in the past to cement their power in the region. Bolsonaro himself has said that the Supreme Court, which for many legitimate reasons is the subject of huge criticism in Brazil, that uh, once he becomes president, he plans to um, pack the Supreme Court with his own appointees in order um, to get uh, you know, his way uh, at the court. And in the past, though, he's as a candidate now and aware that uh, he has to tone down slightly what he says as a candidate. He says, oh, I said this in the past and I no longer believe that. But he has said in the past that, you know, that the, the president should shut the Congress, that the Congress in Brazil, which is a corrupt institution, doesn't um, doesn't function properly. And therefore, not that he said it should be reformed, it should be shut down. 
So I think that there is a growing sense amongst um, a lot of people in Brazil uh, that, yes, uh, it is a, a Bolsonaro presidency would be a live risk to the country's democracy. And I suppose it's worth remembering that Brazil last had a military government as recently as 1985. So it's not that its democratic institutions are are all that deep-rooted. They're not. And um, in many ways, um, democracy has been very successful in Brazil. You look at um, a host of um, a broad range of social indicators, things have improved um, with democracy, but, you know, it's not, it, it hasn't been perfect. Um, one of the things Bolsonaro has capitalised on a lot is that violence and gun crime and the homicide rate in Brazil has exploded since the return of democracy. And many um, Brazilians, particularly older Brazilians, um, they have um, they have a certain nostalgia for the military regime because they like to remember that when the military came in in the 60s, up until around the mid 70s, Brazil boomed. It was the, it was the China of its time. It was you know multi year growth rates of 10% a year. Um, and there was a huge influx of people into the middle class. That all went wrong then after the oil shocks and the military left the state, uh, essentially bankrupt and suffering from the beginnings of hyperinflation. But people don't tend, many people don't tend to remember that. And they like to remember the good years of the military dictatorship. So it's not only that it's quite recent, it's that um, quite a few people in the country have a certain nostalgia for the for the years the generals were in charge. And Tom, just before I wrap up, you mentioned um, a few moments ago that Bolsonaro was stabbed during the campaign. I think it was a, a mentally disturbed person who um, who stabbed him. Um, what do we know about his current state of health? He is now out of intensive care. Um, he is still in hospital. Uh, his medical team say that he is improving. Uh, his team are talking about him. If not for, uh, before the first round of voting, that by the second round, he will be able to participate more in the campaign. But he is uh, receiving members of his team um, in uh, in his hospital here in Sao Paulo. He's also started giving more interviews um, uh, from, from hospitals. So his health is improving. And some of the questions that uh, last week when he had to undergo a second operation that there was a certain suspicion that actually a situation might be more delicate than we were being told. That seems to have dissipated now, and it does seem that he should be able to leave hospital in time for the second round, the, the campaign leading up to the second round of voting. OK, Tom, well, uh, you wrote a very interesting profile of Bolsonaro in the, in the Irish Times at the weekend. That's on irishtimes.com, and we'll be following your coverage over the next couple of weeks, coverage of the election. Thanks for that today. Thanks, Chris. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.